Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This is episode number 209. Our guest today is Michael Freeman. Michael Freeman is not an ophthalmologist, nor is he really the CEO of an ophthalmology company. Uh, he is a, a technology person. He has got an interesting story uh, involving his family and the creation of the first technology platform that could uh, transmit video via cellular signals. And uh, we get into that story a bit at the beginning because it's very interesting. But the connection to OIS and the OIS podcast is Michael's most recent company, Ocutrix, which is developing an augmented reality wear product for people with macular degeneration. It's still in development, but it seems to be working really well. And uh, Michael tells the story of the technology well and also of its, its origins. It's a very personal origin uh, for Michael and his family in starting this company and developing this technology that hopefully will help millions of people. So I'll uh, get into that conversation in a moment. I did want to remind you that uh, OIS at Seaco is happening on February 21st in New Orleans. So please go to OIS.net to register for that. And uh, you'll join many folks. We had Paul Karpecki, one of the co-chairs on last week. And uh, it's been uh, a great event for us, for OIS, to be moving into uh, ophthalmology. So we're very excited about that. So if you're going to SECO, uh, please do give it a try. Go to OIS.net to register. And one more thing before I get into this conversation with Michael Freeman. At our break, uh, I'll have a message from uh, Vance Thompson about a uh, program that he's involved with called the Winning Pitch Challenge. So if you're uh, an ophthalmologist with an eye toward innovation, you'll want to uh, listen to that as well. Now let's get into this conversation with Michael Freeman of Occutrix. Well, Michael Freeman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, I typically open these conversations asking people how they found their way into ophthalmology, but uh, I think we need to zoom back even further because your entry into ophthalmology, I think, is fairly recent. And we need to learn a little bit about yourself because you've got an interesting background uh, in technology. And uh, what is your where where were you born, and, and and what is your training? What is your what is your your uh, professional upbringing, if you if you would? Yes, I'm a Midwesterner, but my father was a uh, fighter pilot and in the military, and we traveled and were at many places uh, uh, in my young life. And uh, he ended up buying a computer company, and so I grew up building computers. The company was called PC Designs, and at one point in time, we were the largest supplier of computer products to the state of California in the 1990s. And so this is uh, this is what uh, established my on-the-job training and my background in uh, electronics and in computers and in circuit boards and circuitry. And at one point in time, my father looked around and said, I need an attorney. You're going to law school. And so <laughs> I ended up going to law school. And uh, But most of my uh, life, I've been in the technology side as a result of working in the computer company and working with uh, Intel and Microsoft and Oracle out here in California, supplying the state of California with computer products, uh, I, my brother and I and my father and my brother-in-law, all who worked on the computer company, ended up coming up with the very first mobile video 
protocol and device where in 1994 we made a 1G or a half G tower, like a 6G tower, by putting multiple uh, cell phones in the back of a small computer box with a keyboard. And uh, we uh, had great success with that. We got the first mobile video patents that the U.S. Patent Office uh, ever awarded. And uh, we sold it to the television stations because they used it all over the country. Uh, sold it to oil and gas companies uh, and other large concerns, all kinds of companies that needed remote monitoring and remote um, uh, video information. Uh, so we had a great success with that and then end up selling the technology and the patents to Samsung in the 2000s. We had licensed it to all the uh, cell companies um, uh, in the 1990s and then sold the patents of the technology to Samsung and then later ended up uh, testifying in the Apple versus Samsung case and the, in the counter claims because uh, FaceTime had violated our original patents. So that was an interesting experience to uh, to go through. So, so take us still back to, to 1993. I don't even know if I had a cell phone in 1993. If I did, I'm pretty sure it wasn't equipped with video. What was what was the device that you created and what was transmitting the video and what was receiving the video? Were they cell phones or, or devices that you had created? So we started with uh, car phones, actually. And oh. then, as you may recall, car phones turned into bag phones and generally you kept the bag phone in your car, too, but it's a little bit more portable. So what we did was get with a number of the companies uh, of the, at the time and created a protocol that would do the instant conversion of uh, the real-time conversion of video into the microprocessor. And so we worked with Intel and Andy Grove back in those days, who was running Intel to uh, develop this first protocol. And then we used transceivers that we made, which were a modem and a cell phone put together. And then we, these were the hardware parts and cards and uh, uh, circuit boards that we then built into a small computer. It had a computer screen and on the front, you let down the front of the box and it had a type t a keyboard in it. And you could plug a uh, camera, like a, a television station camera into it. It did not have its own capture, uh, it didn't have its own um, uh, video device at first. Later on, we put uh, cameras in it. But the first use was for the uh, television stations. They'd plug their camera in and they could send real-time video. The protocol was we split the um, video up into uh, at least six parts and monitored their streaming back over the cellular network and pumped more information down whatever stream was fastest. And then it got back to the uh, television station. It got to the cell tower. And then from the cell tower, of course, it went through fiber optics back to the uh, station, but it was the first uh, way that you could get real time, twenty four frame a second uh, video on television. So we we actually used it with uh, I don't know if you remember Doctor Red Duke. He was a doctor at Herman Teaching Hospital in Houston, and in nineteen ninety four we embarked on a protocol with him to put uh, these video devices in ambulances, and so we were the first ones to have video in an ambulance uh, heading back to uh, the hospital so the doctors could check like the leads on patients and and uh, speak with the uh, uh, 
EMTs over our video device. So that was one of our first medical devices, and it was called Rescue Cam. And uh, you could take it out, and the bombing at the Murrow building, we were down with the Rescue Cam, helping them in the recovery and rescue era. Um, effort there in Oklahoma City. So given that uh, later on, and we don't need to necessarily go into this, and, and I promise our OAS podcast listeners, this is connected to ophthalmology, so we're heading in that direction. Uh, Apple and some, Samsung uh, got into several uh, uh, patent lawsuits over who owned what, and, and and you were testifying in that case, as you alluded to earlier on. So is is my question, is it the technology you're developed, is it, is it Genuine, genuine, generally seen as sort of the 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 first generation of the video we have today, the FaceTime or whatever we're using on our cell phones, or have things sort of evolved beyond what you had initially developed? Uh, no, I think that the experts in that case uh, uh, at least agreed that we were the first. Whether or not uh, Apple's experts didn't agree that uh, they were violating our technology, uh, partly because of the microization. So we had big parts and pieces that you could see. Now everything's in a cell phone that's, you know, so small that, uh, you know, your, your uh, uh, channels, your Wi-Fi channels and your cellular, cellular channels are so small, they're just in chips. So you have four or five different frequencies in one chip. But uh, we were the first, and uh, there was a few people slapping their heads saying, Please tell me that mobile video did not get invented in, you know, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, but it was true. <laughs> <laughs> so the Silicon Valley guys didn't, didn't want to believe it, but it was true. <laughs> I love it. Go Broken Arrow. Uh, and I, and I'm looking at a, an article, uh, and I just have to ask about it. It's, 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 uh, it's, the link is on your website, but it's, uh, it's, it's basically about you're about to testify in, in one of these cases. And it's a picture of you. You look like you're wearing a lab coat next to two Emmys. Um, what was was the lab coat for the research you were doing? Because you're not a physician. No, it was it was for it was for the uh, research we were doing. So we had a, we had our lab, and it wasn't uh, quite the clean lab that you might see at the J and J or Taiwan Semiconductor. But still, we had to wear anesthetic. You know, we were dealing with electronic parts, so uh, that was part of the protocol. Was a hat and a lab coat, and then the Emmys uh, uh, Channel Four in Oklahoma City, which was our first customer, nominated us for two Emmy Awards, uh, Best Spot News and Best Technological Innovation for Television Sciences in 1994. So we won two Emmy Awards. So we got that to our credit as well. All right. I think you're my first Emmy Award winner on this podcast. So <laughs> it's great to have you. All right. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation to tell you about a really cool and unique opportunity coming up at ASCRS. It's called the Winning Pitch Challenge. It is an opportunity for surgeons and ophthalmologists who have an eye toward innovation to uh, present their idea to people who know what they're talking about. Judges will be Dick Lindstrom, Bill Link, Jim Mazo, Guy Kutsov. They're all uh, folks who know opportunity when they see it. So if you have been sort of uh, noodling around with an idea in your head and you want it to uh, see the light of day, this is a great opportunity for you. Let's, uh, let's hear from our friend Vance Thompson about uh, the candidates, the kind of folks that they're looking for for the winning pitch. If you know any innovative ophthalmologist looking for advice on how to, you know, basically be a part of an ecosystem that's going to help them in developing their innovative ideas through 
advice on prototypes and early stage uh, investing and phases of development and all these things, uh, the Winning Pitch Challenge could be perfect for them. All right, there's a number of goals and, uh, and requirements. I uh, suggest you go to the website, winningpitchchallenge.net. That's winningpitchchallenge.net. You'll see everything that you need to, uh, to apply for this. Unfortunately, the deadline is Monday, so uh, you'll need to act quickly. But if, you're, uh, if you've got that right idea and you're properly motivated, then I think this is the chance you need to take. So go to winningpitchchallenge.net to find out more details. Now let's get back into this conversation. So let's fast forward now and let's talk about Occutrix, which is uh, the company you're, you're leading now. Uh, it's a it's an AR company with uh, with a really nothing novel neat product in, in ophthalmology. Tell us first a bit about its its origins. What what technology are you working with, and how did it come together? Thank you, Tom. Well, so, uh, as I alluded to, my father, my brother, and I invented the mobile video. Years later, uh, he developed my, my father developed macular degeneration, and uh, he it, it progressed to the point where he'd quit flying, he had quit driving, couldn't even use the lawnmower. And uh, he became, like many patients, withdrawn, uh, unable to really communicate, unable to read emails, to see our faces and that kind of thing. And so he gathered us together one Sunday afternoon and said, look, we invented mobile video. There's got to be a way we can do something to improve my outcome of being able to see again and read emails. And so we started working around investigating and understanding what macular degeneration was, uh, interrogating his uh, doctor, who is Dr. Finley, who's actually now the chairman of our International Medical Advisory Board. And uh, the breakthrough came when we walked him into a curved TV. Remember in 2013, curved TVs were kind of the rage. And when we walked him into a curved TV close, he said, I can see better. And we realized it was because with with his help, we realized that it was because more information was getting uh, deposited on his periphery and avoiding that area of the defect. So we went to work with, uh, went back to our labs. We'd kept the labs since the 90s. And we went back to work in the labs and started developing. At that time, it was a VR-type product, so you couldn't see through it. You could only see with the image that was displayed. And we went through torturous hours and days of developing software which could identify the area of his defect, which is analog, and translate that into a digital uh, XY pattern so that the digital device would know where that defect is. And then we took a streaming video and we buffered the video where all of the information was displayed to my father, the user, but none of the information was displayed on the area of the defect. And the effect that it had was the brain was able to put the image back together so he could see a modified, corrected image and be able to see his first words when when he, when he first started wearing it was, oh, I can see your nose. I haven't been able to see your nose for five years. And so we we did the... Uh, for facial recognition and task, we moved all the pixels out 360 degrees. We found that to be the best protocol. But for reading, we moved them out rectilinearly where it only moved left to right. So as he focused on a word, the letters would actually jump either to the left or the right of his defect so that all the letters were there in his periphery to see 
but none of them were displayed in the area of the defect. So as he scanned a line, the letters would hop out, and within a short period of time, 30 minutes or 45 minutes, he was able to begin comprehending words again and then lost track mentally of the, of the blind spot. How are you able to pinpoint the, uh, the gap and, and to know, uh, or do you need to pinpoint, you need to locate the gap and sort of and, and identify where it is in, in the person's vision, correct? How is that done? Yes, Tom. So we, uh, so there's two things you need to do. You need to have a, a edge detection, you know, a visual field test for perimetry. And uh, then you need to have eye tracking so that you always keep the buffered image in the right aspect ratio with the person's gaze. And so our Oculens headset, the headset's called Oculens, it's now a AR headset so that it's augmented reality so you can see clearly through it, uh, so you can see steps or doorways or any other obstacle. But then you have this image that's projected. You have the ability to change the focal length of the image. It could be projected in front of you. It could be projected right on the lens. And we go through a test where the subject uh, holds a clicker in his hand and the headset runs through a routine where it shows flashes of light, streaming light, shooting stars, and a bunch of concentric circles. And from this test, we identify where the person can see on the edge of his uh, uh, macula and where he, where he or she can't see. And so that's how we do the uh, AR visual field test and perimetry to identify in an analog sense where that defect is per eye. So you do one, you do the test in each eye. And then from there on, the software and the algorithms know exactly where digitally to buffer the video image. So it takes a real time video image, displays it on the screen, but buffers it so that uh, nothing is displayed in the area of the defect. How long? Give it. Give us a time frame. When was that meeting on that Sunday afternoon, and uh, and how long did the state take to develop? So that was in 2013. We worked with rudimentary uh, circuit boards and wires hanging out and all that kind of stuff through uh, 2014, and the effort really got underway in 2000. Uh, 16, uh, late 2016, to commercialize it as a project. My father, unfortunately, passed away in 2014. We kind of left the project alone for a little while after after a heart surgery. And so we didn't go back to it a little bit later. But then 2016, we put the team together, got most of the engineers that helped us develop the mobile video back together, and uh, started developing an AR device that has the widest field of view and the uh, most peripheral vision uh, of any of the devices out there. And let's talk a bit about what the, the well, let's first back up. What sort of uh, patent protection do you have for it? I know you received a patent recently, I think, for one aspect of it. But is this, is this is your entire system uh, patent protected at the moment? Yes, it is. So the first patent was the general patent that covers all of our general technology and how we capture their image, how we buffer the image, how we use a heads-up display to display the image. And so that was the first patent that was itu- issued in March of last year. Uh, now we have uh, the second patent, which is the eye tracking feature of it. So we have not only the eye tracking connected to the way we buffer or modify an image for a macular degeneration patient, but we also have claims for just eye tracking in augmented reality headsets, period. And so that's some pretty broad coverage. We have 
least uh, 10 other patents pending, and we think we'll have uh, somewhere, you know, around 40 plus patents uh, issued uh, ultimately because we were predicting. So in 2014, 2013, 14, when we were first filing patents, we were already predicting that you'd have to have eye tracking and augmented reality and some things that have really come to pass just in the last couple of years. Interesting. So how did the company, where did your funding come from? Have you raised money from, from outside sources? Is this completely funded internally? Yeah. So it started out being uh, funded internally. And then uh, the secondary source of our funding has been uh, primarily retinal specialists and ophthalmologists and people that are in the industry. We have a, we have a very interesting and broad ranging uh, international uh, medical advisory board that has, Dr. Sam Garg from uh, the University of California, Irvine, Dr. You know, Linda Lamb from University of Southern California. We have Duke represented, uh, University of Alabama, and so uh, Mexico and University of Colorado. And so we've got a, quite a diverse and distinguished uh, group of representatives that are advising us medically and in the ophthalmology field. And so pretty much the second round of uh, fundraising has all been from the medical community and the ophthalmology community. That's great. It's a great network to have. So the product is, is Oculens AR. Uh, how are, where is it in its commercial launch? What kind of approval does it need regulatory wise from the FDA? Where is it in, com in commercial launch? If it's not ready, uh, how does it become available to people? Right. So we are in the final phase of development. And uh, as most people do, you build things bigger and then you shrink it down. We've got a new uh, headset design that we work with uh, Stuart Carton and Carton Designs, award-winning designers to get the most G-Wiz, you know, look that we could get so people will feel comfortable wearing the headset. And we will be out with a completed product in second quarter of 2020. Uh, and, um, that's, that's our timetable on the regulatory side. Uh, we're 510K exempt from the FDA. We have one of the FDA's former committee members, the industry representative to the FDA on medical devices. Barbara Niche is our regulatory and clinical affairs chief. And, uh, so. We're in good shape there. Uh, we will have to be, you know, we will have to go through the UL testing and the FCC type testing, but uh, that's, but we don't have to do a formal uh, FDA clinical trials. We are doing patient evaluations because we want the uh, medical community to adopt and see our hard evidence. And so we've got our first uh, 10 patients uh, in a uh, patient evaluation uh, that was handled in Tulsa, Oklahoma, under the auspices of Dr. Uh, Thomas uh, Finley and Dr. Lars Friesberg and their uh, certified clinical uh, coordinator, uh, Scott Hewitt. And so a report will be out between uh, in the next 60 days written by uh, Dr. Linda Lamb and, and Dr. Finley uh, on the results, which were pretty dramatic. In some cases, we saw people that could not read the top line of a logmar chart, or maybe they could read edge letters under the very top line. And after putting our glasses on, we're able to read four and five lines down. And patients couldn't read 40-point type. And with our headset, they were able to read 40, 30, 20, 12, and 10-point and type. And so the takes about, we found that it takes about 15 minutes for the patients to get accustomed to how they have to quit scanning or not scan so much and look through 
uh, the uh, scotoma uh, to actually see the letters and have them uh, hop out, but it's been very heartwarming. Uh, we've had tears in the testing room and the research lab there at the Tulsa Retinal Clinic uh, because of people that haven't seen in four or five years were able, I haven't been able to read in four or five years, were able to actually read again. I was going to ask about that. I mean, are they able to, to read? Are you able to focus on, on a book or does it have to be sort of looking at far away things like a, a sign or a television set? No, we were doing the, the paragraph testing. That's, I forget the actual name of the paragraph testing right this second, but it's the typical like 14 inch, uh, you know, uh, testing. So it's like handheld. It's like how, how you would, you know, hold out your arms and read something. So we did the logmar test for the far away, and then we did the handheld for the close-up. So how does this become available to uh, to people once it's ready? Is this something that's sold through physicians? Do you see a consumer launch? What's the path? Yeah, so our, our primary path is through the low vision specialist. They typically have the occupational therapist. Uh, you know, we've done a very large survey of how we could work with them. And typically the larger, at least the top 700 or so have one or more uh, occupational therapists that generally work with the patients to try to find the tools and the right, you know, solution for them. And so we would provide these clinics uh, with our oculins and uh, with instructions. And so that's where typically a patient would get referred by their retina specialist when the shots and other treatment really don't seem like they will produce any further outcome, uh, you know, improvement, and uh, they would get referred to a low vision specialist. In some areas, the retinal specialists are wanting to make a, you know, agreement with us to have that done in-house in their in their own uh, uh, clinics, you know, the clinics that have fifteen to twenty thousand patients are big enough that they can they can absorb that type of activity within their own own clinic. So that's our path to market. And you recent ad, ad, recently added Dr. Linda Lamb to your team. What is her role going to be, and what will she be overseeing? Yeah, we're thrilled to have added her to our team. She originally uh, came on board as one of our. Uh, medical advisors. Then she became the vice chairman of our medical advisory board. And then when we started doing the testing and her help with the uh, testing and logistics and basic understanding of the uh, regulatory and clinical side, we actually uh, brought her more on board with us. And she is now our chief scientific and strategy officer. And she's doing just a fantastic job at that. So she is really one of your up and coming medical entrepreneurs which is, you know, much needed. Uh, one of your recent guests, Dr. Paul Karpecki, was talking about the areas, the four or five areas uh, that, uh, you know, innovation is needed the most, and macular degeneration uh, was one of those areas because I think most people understand that there is a point that the that the shots and other treatments really don't provide too much of a improved outcome. And so that's our target market, those people who have an established uh, scotoma that uh, that is either absolute or relative scotoma enough that they that they do have a large vision loss in the in the center of their eye, and so that is our that's our target market. Those are the people that we can help the most, and uh, have been showing that with the test. What has your experience been? We we like to talk about the uh, the innovative spirit in, in ophthalmology and how uh, many ophthalmologists seem to have just a, a fondness for new technologies. When did you first begin engaging 
ophthalmologists with this idea, or if you had an idea previous, maybe you can talk about it then. And what is your assessment from someone coming from the technology world, uh, working with, with ophthalmologists? What's your assessment of the specialty? So my overall assessment is that ophthalmology is one area that thrives on innovation. And uh, we found that we found that great because we are newcomers to ophthalmology. We're not newcomers to technology, but newcomers to ophthalmology. But we're also some of those newcomers who are bringing new ideas uh, to the field. And uh, we were welcomed with open arms because uh, we have found that the, 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 the Physicians, the ophthalmologists, the retinal specialists, they care so much about their patients. And because this disease, macular degeneration, particularly macular hole, macular degeneration, and some of the others, uh, gets to a point where they are just as frustrated as the patient, where they really have nothing else treatment-wise, clinically, medically, that they can do. And now they need some other solution. So they have been really accepting of a new way to have a better patient outcome for these people that are afflicted with this disease that are, what, 15 million now and going up to maybe 30 million, you know, by in 10, 15 years. So it's a, it's a large patient population. So we've been thrilled to work with them and, and have been welcomed, uh, you know, with open arms uh, to uh, into the community. And, and uh, so that's, that's been a great part of it and, uh, you know, we're, we're thrilled to be working in this area and working with some of the best. And what area do you think you, you might be working in today if your dad hadn't convened you all on that Sunday afternoon and, and given you this mission? And, and, and what's it like making progress with, with him not here to unfortunately enjoy uh, the fruits of your success? Yeah, so his his vision, we have a passion for this. I mean, we're a close family. My parents had five kids. Military family had five kids. They adopted nine kids, so we were a very big family. Wow. And uh, he had a passion for helping people. And one of his passions was that we developed this because he found it so debilitating. He'd led such an active life and flown fighter jets of, of protecting us, uh, you know, in many continents. Mm-hmm. And uh so he was all about helping other people and giving. And so this was one of his dreams. That's why we still have his picture, you know, in our PowerPoint and on our website, some of our literature. This was one of his dreams that he could help others, not just himself, getting from a point of having an active mind and an active body, but unable to communicate, you know, through typing and emails and seeing people's faces and seeing their mouths, you know, when they when they speak uh, back to an active life. And this has been borne out in some of our patient studies where uh, a patient would wear our glasses and have their spouse stand in front of them and just talk about their features. And then you find, you know, that they're both crying because the spouse that uh, still has the eyesight that helps the other one realizes I haven't heard my spouse say anything about the way I look in, you know, two years. And this is, you know, phenomenal. And so it's really, it's really heartwarming and something that we've taken on as a passion, you know, in the name of our father and for him uh, uh, to uh, try to help a lot of other people. That's great. That's a great gift that he he gave you to give you this purpose. Uh, Yes. Finally, uh, you're not in broken arrow anymore, right? (laughs) So this, this technology is now tied to Southern California? We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> how, how did you find your way there? Yeah, so this is the second technology company that I've set up in uh, uh, California. I've got about 60 patents in five different fields and very active in all types of research. And uh, so 
this is an area that because you've had a couple of the huge uh, uh, software hardware companies uh, here in Southern California downsize and and uh, change focus, then there is just a wealth of uh, people who have, uh, they're highly skilled and have a lot of talent to be able to uh, help us bring this technology to the market. You know, I'd say Stuart Carton again, he's an award-winning designer, and we were thrilled to get uh, his team on board to help us design, you know, the the most useful, user-friendly, you know, AR headset out there. Terrific. Well, it's a it's a great story. Uh, we're glad to have you as part of the ophthalmology community, and uh, we certainly look forward to your future success. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I appreciate your welcome, and uh, thank you for the time on your podcast today. All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this OIS podcast. I hope you enjoyed that story of innovation. I love these kind of tales. So uh, thank you to uh, everyone who comes in the podcast and, and shares them. So if you could uh, do us a favor, podcast listeners, tell your friends about the podcast, share the podcast. You can do that on social media, or you can uh, actually just text these podcasts to people if you look on your, uh, your iTunes app. It's all there under share. So uh, let other people know what you're listening to and why. Love to have more people uh, as part of the podcast community. Finally, don't forget OIS at Seco. It's happening on February 21st in New Orleans. Go to ois.net and we'll see you in New Orleans next week. Don't wait. <laughs>